So several thousand years ago, the Israelites, uh, the Jewish people, the people of God, were slaves in a country called Egypt, which is where Egypt is today. Except at the time, Egypt was a significant uh, empire and owned and ruled over a large portion of their part of the world. Not as large as, say, the Roman Empire, but they were influential. And out of this, God freed the slaves through a series of miracles that people make movies about. Uh, and uh, make, you can read about them, you can watch them in the movies, you can see this. And as God brought the Israelite people out of Egypt, this in the, which is captured in the book of the Bible called Exodus, it becomes the defining moment for this people. Uh, much like uh, here in America, the signing of the uh, in Declaration of Independence becomes that moment, that moment where we change from being that to being this. And for the Israelite people, that exodus is the moment they change from being that to being this, except it took a long time for this exodus to happen because when they left, they wander in the desert for 40 years. A whole generation dies off and a new generation rises up and God brings them to the promised land. And the promised land, which is where generally where modern day Israel is today, you can, if you have a Bible with maps in the back, you can look at this kind of thing or you can Google it. But the promised land is this region that um, the Israelites had to go into and it wasn't just like go in and take over this empty land. There were people living there. And in general, they were the Canaanite people. And the Canaanite people were an incredible frustration to the Israelite people. And what they did when they went into that land was basically kill all of them. It becomes a pretty complicated conversation because it seems like God is advocating genocide in the Bible where the Israelite people go in and destroy all of the Canaanite people, men, women, child, soldiers, civilians, wipe them out, take over their cities, uh, which is a whole other conversation. Some Canaanites survive. Many of them are driven out. Many of them are killed. And you can imagine the relationship between someone who claims to be Canaanite and someone who claims to be Jewish or Israelite uh, moving forward. Probably not that great of a relationship. Even a couple thousand years later, when we get to the time of Jesus, we would see there would be some complication there. Because you're that, and I'm this, and my people did this, and your people did that. And the war history between them is actually kind of interesting. The Canaanite people and the people like them, Philistines and those kinds of folks, tended out towards the coast the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, where there's a little bit flatter land, and they would tend to have a little better technology. And their technology, where we have iPads and wireless internet, they had welding. <laughs> they had, uh, like, blacksmiths making spears out of steel and copper, and they didn't have steel. Uh, more complicated metals. That was technology. It's kind of cool. Uh, look, I have something made out of metal technology. Um, but they tended out there. The Israelites tended towards the hill country where less technology was accessible. If you've made an amazing chariot, I'm going to go over this mountain that you can't bring your chariot over, and then we're going to have a fight. And that was how the Israelites owned the area that they owned. And so even in the time of Jesus, the coastal regions, and then a little bit to the north and a little bit to the south, tended to be pagans, or people who didn't believe in Jehovah God, people who didn't believe in the God that the Jewish people did. 
and they lived there, and the Jewish people lived in more of the central land. Um, and when the Romans took over, for the Romans, they sold the peace of Rome, right? The Pax Romana. And as the Roman Empire spreads over the earth, and this is the reality of Jesus' life when Jesus is walking the earth in, you know, A.D. 26 or whatever. He's walking around, and the, the people will not war against each other because the Roman Empire is the ruling power and keeps that from happening. So there's this weird peace. We hate each other, but we can't do anything about it. The Jews in Jesus' day, and Jesus was a Jewish person, had um, derogatory terms that they would refer to people with. Uh, if you were a Gentile person, calling you a dog was just a common phrase. In the same way that when we go to war with other people and you watch a movie about it, the soldiers in that movie will use derogatory terms towards those people. And then you'll watch that with your son to educate them and he'll use that term in regular conversation. And you'll have to explain, well, here's why we don't say that anymore. And Not that that happens, but it is, it's a natural thing, a natural phenomenon. When Jewish people, there was in between like Galilee where Jesus tended to hang out and the actual city of Jerusalem was Samaria. And the Jewish people who were Orthodox would call the Samaritans half-breeds because they were half-Jewish and half-Canaanites. And they would call them that to their face. And instead of taking the highway straight from Galilee to Jerusalem, they would actually take another road over the river and then south and then back over the river so that they didn't have to walk through half-breed land. It's like if you were going to Canada and you didn't want to go through Washington, you went all the way to Idaho and around. We would think that's ridiculous, but for them it was great because I don't want to be near those pot-smoking, no-income, tax-paying hippies, all right? <laughs> that's <laughs> so we resonate with this, right? <laughs> but that's how they saw it, except they saw it with a, with a much more ethnically racist viewpoint. And so Jesus today... In our story today, Jesus' primary mission is to the house of Israel. With his own words, Jesus is, came to earth to reach Jewish people. It's a whole other theology that I don't think has been developed well enough that Jesus came for the Jewish people, the Holy Spirit came for the Gentile people. Like Jesus didn't reach out to Gentile people, which would be you and I if you're not of Jewish descendancy. The Holy Spirit's job was the furtherance of the gospel to us. Jesus' job was reaching the Jewish house, those people, uh, the house of Israel, by his own terms, by his own words. The spreading of the gospel to the Gentiles, to you and I, was through the power of the Holy Spirit working in the church, not through Jesus himself, which creates some interesting dynamics, and you can write a book about that. Uh, but there is, when Jesus is here, whenever he's in the house of Israel, and as we've been walking through this, we start to see that Jesus has large crowds. A few weeks ago, we talked about Jesus walking on water, and he was going to a town called Gennaraset. Uh, and he was going over there thinking, maybe it'll be a little more calm. And Jesus is trying to have like a little retreat with his disciples, because he knows, you know, the direction that things are going. And so we, we need some time to back out and just pray and relax. And it doesn't happen anywhere he goes. And so our story today, Jesus actually leaves and goes to the coast. 
where the Gentiles live, where the dogs live. And we're going to go over there, and we're just going to get away. This is like having a pastor's retreat in Vegas, right? We're going to go down there, and there won't be anybody that wants to talk to us, you know, and just like, and not like a liberal pastor's, like a, you know, like an Amish pastor's retreat in Vegas. And you go down there, and, and nobody will bother us, and we'll be able to get away from it. And Jesus is going down. He's going to go out. We have, do we have that map? Um, he's going to a, a city called Tyre and Sidon. And uh, as you can see here, you see there's two lakes, the big lake on the bottom and the small lake on the top. The small one on the top is Lake Gennesaret or the Lake of Galilee, Sea of Galilee. And if you go straight over to the coast from there, there's kind of that bay. And as you go there and north is where Tyre and Sidon would be out on the coast, and uh, there would be a lot more sailors. They were harbor cities. And in Sidon, the major god uh, was Eshram, or Eshram. And this uh, Phoenician pagan god was the god of healing. And there was a major temple just outside of Sidon, and this was the major male deity of this town. And the reason, part of the reason, that the Jews and the Canaanites were at war is because of who they said God was. For the Jewish people, God was God over the whole earth, which was a unique thing to say about God because for the Canaanite or for the pagan people, gods were localized. And so the local god of the city of Sidon, the local male deity, the highest level male deity, what it was, this Eshram, who was the deity of healing or a god of healing. And so you would go to his temple and provide offerings or participate in their religious rituals. Uh, which varied through uh, in their levels of uh, unacceptable social activity. Uh, that's how you served the God. And if your healing request was met, then you provided enough sacrifice. And if you got sick, then maybe you didn't say thank you well enough with enough sacrifices uh, with their gods. And so when Jesus goes over there, he isn't going to the coast in like a neutral way. He's going over to the coast to Tyre and Sidon, except he's going over there, entering into a landscape that's, that has assorted pagan gods, has a ranking system for those pagan gods, and he's entering into that conversation. Jesus, who is the God-man, who is God incarnate, God with flesh and bones and walking around in your neighborhood, is walking into the neighborhood of these supposed other gods. The Bible teaches that these other gods were made out of wood and stone. And Psalm 115, one of our songs we sang today, not to us, but to your name be the glory, is taken from Psalm 115. That psalm actually goes on to say, their their gods have mouths, but they don't speak. They have eyes, but they don't see, because they're carved statues. But the scripture also teaches that some of these gods are actually demonic. That this is a, there's a real spiritual thing happening as people worship false idols and false gods. And Jesus' interaction with demons and idols and gods becomes, re, becomes pretty dynamic. If you can imagine walking around with God and demons show up to have a conversation with God. And demons aren't like on the same level as God. If you read the scripture, there are formerly angels, and there was kind of a, a attempted coup. I don't know why you would try an attempted coup in heaven, 
uh, but this is what happens. Uh, Pre-creation, apparently, and uh, approximately a third of the angels were actually sent to hell. Like the devil, we don't believe that the devil carries the authority that he believes he does because the devil is a created being that is now suffering the consequences of sin, which sets us apart from angels. Jesus provides for humanity. He does not provide for... There's no salvation available for angels. So if you think when you die you become an angel, that's actually really sad. Uh, but <laughs> don't tell that to people at the funeral, all right? But, oh, now they have their wings. Nope. Uh, all right. So, um, but there is... When Jesus walks into this, there's real dynamics happening and if you're the God-man walking around on earth, there's real spiritual dynamics happening, and you can't get away from that. And so as we read this story, I want you to keep all of that in mind, because this story happens in a real time, in a real place, and has real consequences to what Jesus is doing. Because he's speaking into a culture that believes in an, uh, a competitive God system, that believes in like a localized competitive God system, that believes in ethnic, acceptable ethnic racism uh, that believes in uh, destroying enemies and overcoming those uh, who might not agree with you or serve a different God. And the way to win is to destroy the opposition so that our God looks better. Uh, this is Jesus entering into that, and we'll read this together. And Jesus went away from there, down at the Lake of Galilee, and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon on the coast. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And Jesus came and begged him, or sorry, and his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. And he answered, Jesus answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And she said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Isn't that an awkward story? The Jesus who is loving and nice and you appreciate and he's your buddy, a woman comes to him with a request and he keeps walking like he doesn't even hear her. And his disciples come and say, Jesus, could you please say something because she's following us. Can you just get rid of her? Like we're trying to do this retreat and we have this annoying woman who won't leave us alone. And Jesus finally talks to her then and calls her a dog. Which, just like today, is not the way you want to talk to a woman you're meeting for the first time. All right? <laughs> and this doesn't mean Jesus wasn't smooth with the ladies. All right? <laughs> this was a common reference point. But Jesus ends up healing this woman's daughter who was oppressed by a demon, who had demonic influences in her life. And this woman's daughter is healed from an apparent distance. Jesus wasn't right there with her. He controls and shows authority over the spiritual world in such an 
amazing dynamic way. She comes to him, and if you, um, if you have a study Bible, and if you don't, I encourage you to grab one. Uh, and the bookstore in Corvallis is going out of business, and they're on super sale, so drop in and get an ESV study Bible. Um, but uh, take advantage of a local business going under. Um, but there, that's, I know, that's sad, but I did. So, um, <laughs> but you, <laughs> if you have a study Bible, the book of Matthew is written um, like maybe around the year A.D. 70. And the book of Mark is written maybe as early as like 50 or 55 A.D. And so a lot of scholars assume that the book of Matthew could have used Mark as a source to figure out what to write. And you can read this exact same story in Mark, except the woman is called a Greek woman, which was Gentile, like anything not Jewish was Greek. She was just that. Matthew turns up, the, turns up the heat on the ethnic tension by calling her a Canaanite. Because she's not just Greek, she's actually a Canaanite. She's not just not one of us, she's one of the ones that we really hate. Matthew, who's writing, and the Gospel of Matthew is written to an audience that already has a handle on what it is to know God. It's a religious audience or a Jewish audience. And in its original intent, this is who I wrote this book for. When Matthew turns up the heat on the racism that is accepted amongst the religious group. And we, today, we would have prejudices. We do. Whether we like to admit it or not, we do. Our experiences, our input, our culture, our upbringing brings that into our life. And Matthew actually kind of pokes that, turns a spotlight on it, and says, so this Canaanite woman comes up. And so the response that Jesus gives by keep on on walking, the religious people are like, bang, yes. So those people that I actually don't like, I'm justified in because Jesus doesn't either. And if the story ends there, the religious people feel awesome because we can ignore those people that we don't like because Jesus did. And in Jesus' day, this was actually kind of an acceptable thing. Nobody would have been surprised. It's a woman, first of all, and talking to a woman as a male in the ancient Near East, scandalous, which Jesus does all the time. John 4, the reason John 4 is scandalous is because Jesus goes and talks to the woman at the well who's had five husbands and is now living with some man. And Jesus goes up and has a conversation with her. <laughs> Everybody, like, oh, if Jesus' mom saw that, he would have been in trouble. But, so Jesus keeps walking, and then the disciples get annoyed because this woman won't stop, and she actually comes and blocks his way and kneels down in front of him, refers to him and says, Oh, Lord, and that doesn't mean he's, she recognizes his deity, but she recognizes that he's a son of David, so she knows a little bit about the Jewish race and their different faith that she has. And she knows enough that she's choosing to ask Jesus and we don't know what the dynamic is between this woman and the god Eshram. Eshram, who is the god of healing in the town of Sidon, who is the major male deity. If you have a problem of demonic influence oppressing your daughter, Eshram's the god that you go to. 
Eshram is the doctor for that problem. And yet she goes and chooses Jesus. And then Jesus references her and says, well, I'm here for the house of Israel. I'm not here for you. And he actually says, why would we give bread to the dogs and not to the, like it belongs to the children of Israel? It's kind of a fun thing there because dogs in their culture were wild, were scavengers, they're violent. They were known for, <laughs> in the reading, dogs were known uh, for gross stuff. All gross stuff. Except really rich Gentile people would sometimes have tiny dogs as house pets. You know, the annoying kind? <laughs> and, <laughs> and they would have these really well-to-do Gentiles would have this. And there's a different Greek word for that. And, and that Greek word, we would use the word like puppy or something like that. That's the word that Jesus actually uses. And so you don't catch this in the direct translation to English because the people who translate it have no heart. But it should say why, <laughs> it should say what Jesus says, uh, it's not right to take the children's bed, bread and throw it to the puppies. Because Jesus actually takes this racism and notches it down a bit. It's an interesting moment because Jesus doesn't have to do that to be culturally acceptable to all of his disciples who are annoyed at this dog woman who would refer to him with racially profiling, ethnic prejudice terms. And Jesus actually dials that back. And then she refers to him, and in her persistence, she actually says, yes, even the dogs eat the crumbs that come from their master's table, which makes sense, because in their culture, you would not have a wild dog in your house eating the crumbs from your table. If a dog came in your house, you would kill it. But one of these little puppies that were kind of house pets, you would treat them differently. And so Jesus allows her to be in the house. When he says, I was sent only for the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and then he allows her to be in the house. And she asks only for some crumbs from the table. And Jesus heals her daughter because, O oh woman, great is your faith. At what moment, here's the big question, at what moment does the Canaanite woman become a follower of Jesus? And you, we can go back and read it ten times. And you can't find that. At no moment does this woman become a well-behaved Christian. She never converts to Judaism, which Jesus was. She never changes her religious beliefs except for her belief that Jesus can do something that her pagan gods apparently cannot. And that sucks for religious people because we want that God who rewards us for being good and instead we end up with this God who rewards people for earnestly seeking him and we're like wait a second Jesus we're very religious over here and we do all the things you want us to do and so we would like our prayers answered 
We begin to treat Jesus like a cosmic ATM, right? Like we put in this much and now we want to make a withdrawal. And what Jesus is, if he's a cosmic ATM, he sits there and waits until somebody asks and really means it in their heart and really is dependent on him. And then the ATM is just like a jackpot. It's frustrating. Because the real question going on here isn't, will you heal my daughter or can you heal my daughter? That's assumed. The real question is, what kind of God are you, Jesus? Because we have localized gods like Eshram. We have a localized God and you're showing up and saying that you're a God over all. That you're a God over all creation. We understand this, but you're saying you're that. So is that real? Are you a God that's ethnically specific because even as jesus says i came for the house of israel for the lost sheep of the house of israel which if you are in the house of israel you are wondering who were those lost sheep because we're the chosen people of god so none of us are lost it's an interesting question that christians ask today who are those lost people because we're christians and jesus actually refers to a great number of them as in needing god's help and so is Jesus just here for that? Even Because that's his mission. That's what he's here for. Or is God an inclusive God? Does he hear the cries of those who don't serve him? Who are actively living sinful life or sinful lifestyles? And then, specifically in Matthew, when we bring up this Canaanite issue, we ask, is God a God that goes to war and destroys his enemies. Is this who Jesus is? Because the correct response to someone who's Canaanite is insulting, is degrading, degrading, is tearing them down, is ignoring them. And if we could, we'd pull our swords out and go to war. But God instead becomes this God who heals his enemies. And for the religious people, this is terrible news. And for the world, this is the greatest news in history. Because Jesus is positioning himself in a landscape of gods as a God who is global, as a God who hears all, as a God who can heal all, as a God who will respond not to those who meet the standard, but God will respond to those who earnestly seek him. Now this isn't referencing this woman's eternal destination. Does that make sense? So we're not talking about like saving faith here. But we're talking about Jesus hearing the prayers and hearing the requests of those who don't even like him. Because the, the question underneath our prayers and the question underneath our requests of God is kind of, the, this is the question that we don't ask is, am I good enough or am I praying enough to get this request answered? Like, how much do I have to put into this relationship with God before I receive some benefit from this relationship with God? And what Jesus seems to be doing, and if you've been here for a few weeks or you listen online, this seems to be a direction that Jesus is going. That he wants your heart 
not your activity. He doesn't want you to reach a certain standard. He wants you to honestly be honest with God and be honest with yourself. So it comes down to this weird moment where Jesus apparently is this global, inclusive, healing God who works by people's great faith, not by people's great record or people's great history or people's great ability to do the things that Jesus said. A Canaanite woman, and Jesus decides to heal her daughter, free her daughter from demonic oppression, demonstrate his authority over the local spiritual realm. Jesus leaves his hometown and shows that he is over all and can control all and nothing can happen against him. There's nothing that he can't do, nothing that he can't decide. He can just go ahead and do this. How's that for affecting your religious efforts? Because you made it to church today, and it's cold, too. Right? Like you probably had to start your car and defrost or just look through that little hole. And, <laughs> and you probably prayed this week, and some of you might own a cheap study Bible from a store that's going under. <laughs> and you, you're like, if God's going to listen to prayers, it's probably going to be mine. There's probably good reason for God to listen to your prayers. You're probably a good person, a good church member. We've put in years or decades of becoming Christ-like and becoming like Him. Which matters. But when it comes down to our relationship, Jesus isn't looking at your record. He's wanting to know how great is your faith. And he's able to work in your life, not by interrupting. Jesus isn't interested in taking over and interrupting your life. He's interested in your great faith. And if you have that great faith, and you're able to just back up and say, all right, this is the God that I am depending on. And there's many gods in my culture and in my society we name them different. We don't name them Eshram, the god of healing, right? We have gods of materialism and gods of status and gods of workaholic. and We have different gods. We name them differently because it's a better way to deceive ourselves. But are we going to put our trust in those gods or are we going to say, Jesus is all I have. That's what I need to depend on. And when I go to prayer, it really is just, this is it. This is my last hope. This is all I've got. Jesus, I need you to do this. Because his disciples, you being a Gentile, is probably, they're probably going to say, you know what, this irreligious Gentile person, can we, God, can, we, can you dismiss them? And you're praying to God. When a religious person is praying to God, they're frustrated that the irreligious are taking up their airtime, Right? God, I would really like you to focus on me. And while God's over here dealing with this person who won't even raise their chin, this person who gets on their knees before God and says, if I could just get crumbs off this edge of your table. Like, I don't even want everything you have, God, if I could just get a little bit, like if I could just get the blessing that falls off the edge. 
That'd be good enough for me. There's a shift. And there's a stark difference in the people who are walking with Jesus in this story. There's some disciples who are our heroes, who are the heroes of the story, the people who committed their lives to learning and following and developing and moving this movement of Jesus forward, and they don't get it. And then there's this Canaanite woman who gets it. And we ask ourselves, who do you want to be like? And the answer is supposed to be, I want to be like a disciple. They're the heroes, right? They're the heroes of the story. And when you read the story, the answer is, we want to be like this Canaanite woman. This woman, this dog, this person who is an enemy of God. That's who you should be like. Goes against all of our religious sensibilities. It goes against a lot of what makes a religious industrial machine tick. That maybe we can learn a bit about desperation from people who are desperate for God. Maybe we can learn a bit about prayer from people who don't like God. And in their moments of need, they turn to him. And maybe what it is to be a Christian is to be in a constant understanding of our need. Like, why weren't the disciples on their knees in front of Jesus more often? Because they had it all together. Because Jesus picked them. They were a big deal. To the point where the night before Jesus died, none of them decided to wash Jesus' feet when they went to the Last Supper, which is traditional. You walk into a house... The guest of honor gets his feet washed. And here we are, those of us who follow Jesus, and the easy temptation is, I don't think I need to kneel down in front of Jesus because Jesus chose me, so I'm kind of a big deal. Like there's some people that don't follow God, but I'm a person who follows God. And so those people who don't follow God, they better get on their faces and repent in front of God. They better. And if they don't, I'm going to tell God to ignore them. And that attitude seeps into us and we end up missing the whole point of the story. We end up missing the opportunity to worship Jesus the way that Jesus actually wants to be worshipped. We start to think we're special and we forget how special Jesus is. The story brings me to a sense of repentance. When I, I mean, I read these ahead of time and I sit in these and I just think, how often am, is this me? How often do I turn on my TV or I walk downtown or I go through and I see people living in a way and I'm just like, man, they need to get on their faces and repent. Like they are, they are enemies of God. I can see that. And how often do I sit there talking about those other people or thinking about those other people and missing my chance to actually repent and turn towards God? to actually take stock of my own life, to actually take the chance to kneel down before Jesus and say, this is all I've got. This is my only option. You're the God I serve. So, so I've been praying that way. And I want to pray that way together. Just that 
a prayer of repentance, meaning we turn in a different direction, a direction of thinking we're special, so we're privileged, so God must appreciate us, and those other people had better turn, to a prayer of, I want to be the first on my face before God. I want to be the first on my knees, annoying Jesus so much with my repentance that he answers my prayer. Not thinking he's going to answer my prayer because of how special I am. I invite you to pray that way with me. Let's bow our heads. And today, Lord, we confess to you those times when we look at our world and notice how lost it is and how much that blinds us to how much uh, or to how lost we are to how we get off the rails so easily and often we get off the rails because of how we feel and speak and think of people who are outside of the boundaries we put on your love as we see someone and think, well, they are an enemy of the cross. They are an enemy of God. And we don't see the things in our own life that put us at odds with you. And so I pray personally, and we pray together, that you would forgive our sin. That you would forgive us for having attitudes and actions that are putting putting a wall between you and us. Attitudes and actions that tear down our life-giving capabilities in this world. And we pray that you would restore us and heal us and lead us to our knees before you. So that what it means to be a follower of Jesus for us isn't that Jesus apparently likes us and blesses us and gives us a privileged position, but it actually means we recognize the desperation and that we have no hope in this world apart from God. And that in our world, which is full, it's a spiritual landscape full of false gods, full of demonic influence. It wasn't something that just happened on the coast in Jesus' day. It's something that happens all the time. We pray that in that, that we would be a part of your movement of healing of inclusive of hearing needs and meeting needs and that the love of god would spread through us to our community to our friends our families our classmates our co-workers not because of how good we are at what we do but because of our repentant hearts and our ability to know our desperation for you may you bring healing to those with great faith. And to that end, we pray that you would give us great faith through great repentance. We pray for your mercy. Amen.